0: i
1: Hello there. Welcome to MSG10, where, as you know, if you listen regularly, we get a guest on to talk us through a movement, a scene or a genre in 10 songs. Um, if you are listening to this on your podcast player of choice, um really recommend going to our website, which is infrequency.co.uk, or our Mixcloud, which is mixcloud.com slash tempfans, both of which are free and both of which you can listen to this in its entirety, with all the songs, uh, legally, and and the bands get paid because of some licensing Mixcloud have. I I read it and I forgot how it works. Um, There's lots of other episodes that you can go and have a listen to. I won't do the full thing here. Uh, Just go to the website and find out. So, today's guest, um, well, musician, DJ, and uh, lots of other things, um, bands such as That Petrol Emotion, Everlasting Yeah, um, it's Raymond Gorman. Hey, Raymond. Thanks for coming on. Hey, yeah. How you doing? Not too bad, although listeners will probably realise this is the third episode in a row where I'll be talking about being in a room that's 40 degrees and, <laughs> and regretting it. And I don't get, I don't think I get any sympathy from it. Um,
2: you do, because we we experienced it last week. So we we finally have, um, we can compare it to something.
1: <laughs> I, I, but that's the thing now. Now that, now that the UK has, has has done it, and there's air conditioning where I live. I live in Spain, so generally there's air conditioning. I know that all my friends back home sort of had it worse, but only for two days. Anyway, I'm digressing. Um, Raymond, thank you for coming on. Um, Before we get into things, what is the movement or the scene or the genre or or what are we talking about today?
2: Um, We're talking about a club in uh, Derry, Northern Ireland, um, called The Left Bank that I started with two friends, John O'Neill or Sean O'Neill and my friend Mickey Rooney and it started in the summer of 1983, when I had returned to Derry from university, after kind of being away from Derry for four years, and I found myself at a loose end and just a, a kind of a couple of very fortuitous events. Um, nothing was really going on, and I'd been away. Like at the university, there'd been quite a, I mean, quite a lot of. Um, it was only like 35 miles away, but there was There was more going on there than there was in Derry at the time. I mean bands really still weren't common, but if they did they, uh, a few bands came to our university, like Dexie's. I saw Dexie's midnight runners uh play to maybe 35, 40 people like oh, wow, this is ten weeks before Gino was not was number one, so we'd already bought dance dance and we we loved it, you know, and we couldn't believe it they were playing our university. It was a bit of a coup to get them. And I think because Kevin Rowland had the Irish background, uh, he was quite fearless, I think, about coming over. But actually, where, where I was at university, it's kind of midpoint between Derry and Belfast. Um, it's like the sec- It was the second university in Northern Ireland, and it should have been built in Derry. But for political reasons, they decided to build it on a swamp halfway between Derry and Belfast. But so that's where I went. But it was really good because you're close to, like, there was like two um, seaside towns, Port Stewart, Port Rush, where all the students could live. And coming from Derry, where, you know, I'd grown up as soldiers on the street and all the paramilitaries and all the nonsense that was going on, and to go up just 35 miles away and there wasn't, I didn't see one policeman the whole
1: uh, four years that I okay Okay, well, We'll, we'll, we'll get into that in a bit, bit more detail slightly later. Um, also, I'm going to say this only once, just be, just for that crappy thing of balance. Um, I was there going, oh, yeah. I was, I was chatting to a mate the other day. Uh, I've got lots of fr- friends who I've accumulated over the years from Northern Ireland, and it was the first time I said, oh, yeah, so I'm going to do a, a podcast about dairy. He went, London dairy. I went, oh, okay. Oh, yeah, some people still record it. So uh, for once, I'm going to say, Derry slash London Derry, but for the sake of sake of this show, I'm just referring it to Derry as Derry because it's a lot easier. Um, so what? So we're in we're in Derry, and what's this scene that we're going to do? What's 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 the thing?
2: Well, basically, it was uh, John O'Neill was on John or Sean as he uh, changed his name later when in that petrol emotion days. He had the undertones had broken up basically, and I think like the end of 82 or maybe the middle of 82, 1982. So he he was at a loose end and he was really, I think he was down in the dumps, really. He was a bit depressed, you know, I mean, you know, the undertones had kind of run their course, but he was back in Derry and he was thinking, well, what the hell am I going to do now sort of thing? And then he met me and I was just like full of enthusiasm for music and and life, basically. Uh, I think he found that quite inspiring and um, we were just playing stuff to each other, and I was really into a lot of uh, like electro and early hip hop, and just more so, like maybe more a lot more avant-garde stuff uh, than he was. Um, whereas he would have introduced me to maybe like Rolling Stones LP tracks, you know, the earlier stuff, from, yeah. like uh, between the buttons, that sort of era, which I. Uh-huh. I had a Rolling Stones' Greatest Hits, but I hadn't by that stage sort of investigated all the albums and stuff, mostly to do with money because I grew up on 45s, seven-inch singles, which were, you know, I was a bit of a sort of pop kid in a way. I was like, I kind of came of age during the kind of glam era. So that's kind of my starting point to music. I mean, we didn't get, my family, we didn't get a record player until I was like 12. <laughs>
0: so okay,
2: like the first record, the first records I bought were all glam, you know, like Bowie, T. Rex, Roxy Music, The Sweet, Gary Glitter, things like that.
1: Okay, fantastic. Okay, fantastic. So, so the two of you got together. He yeah. he had his moment in the sun. Was that yeah. a bit of a loss? You 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 just come back to Derry and you decide to set up a what? Set up a nightclub? Yeah, we, we were just basically hanging out. So we're playing music all the time, and then just had an
2: idea to try and do something, you know? So we used his name, obviously. We used John, like we went to this place called The Venue, which is where the Left Bank uh, was actually took place. And it was basically like the best sort of disco, what we would call a disco in those days, you know? Like, <laughs> like a, you know, a decent set of decks and it had lighting system and everything. And it was a really good venue. It was kind of on the edge of town. So it was pretty accessible to everybody on the on the, what we call the dairy side, not the, not the water side. So like dairy is divided by a river, the foil. So everybody on, and even like on the water side, you could still, you know, it's it wasn't impossible to get there. So it was like, it was a really actually a very good venue. So we went there and, you know, because of John, they, they were very keen to have him on board. So I think if it just had to been maybe me going, uh, you know, Hi, I've
1: got some record. I've got a bunch of I've got a bunch of forty five and I really doubt, want to have a yeah, disco. I don't know right. they
2: would have <laughs> let me do it by myself. So it ended up it was like the three of us me, John, and my other friend Mickey Rooney. So we kind of pulled our record collections together, and um, and that was the start of it, basically. So I even wrote. I mean, I was complete. I don't know where I got all this stuff from, but I even wrote a manifest- manifesto. I think it was. It was the challenge <laughs> because you know if you if you went to a disco like anywhere in Ireland at that time, you know you had these kind of DJs who were you know like but like Steve Wright in the afternoon, you know, just talking rubbish and usually with a kind of fake kind of fake American accent as well, you know. Oh, so actually, properly introducing all the songs. Yeah, you know. yeah, they would. Yeah, so I mean, it seems like this is something that somebody just reminded me about the other day. I completely forgotten about it. So we, like if you did go to a club, even the ones where they would, you know, you'd be lucky if you played 10 good records the whole night. So you'd be hanging on for these 10 records, you know, that that you were really, really fond of. And then you'd have to put up with the rest of the chart fodder or whatever. So we wanted to oppose that. So I even wrote a manifesto for the first night of the club. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds really embarrassing now. And I mean, it was pretty full on, you know, because I was kind of attacking all these sort of institute. Okay,
1: okay, okay. Let's 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 take a five second pause and then I want the manifesto. We need this manifesto. Come on. (laughs) I mean it was just all you know like sort of kill ugly pop, you know, and, and slagging off
2: this DJ who who would have been there in the venue on a Friday night? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so,
1: well, that's the, so, the way to make yourself popular with all yeah. the other people who work there is, is, is just I, come in, kick the door in, and go, this guy, he's shit.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was completely tactless. And I mean, I think he might have even seen the manifestos up because we, we printed it off, <laughs> excuse me, we printed it off on A4 and I put one on it on every table, you know, so when everybody came in, and uh, they didn't really know what to expect. Stuff, and
1: they're reading this thing. And it was like, whoa, this is pretty serious. <laughs> also, I mean, we'll we'll get to the first track in a second. But that also sets you up for a massive fall. You know, if you come in and there's a piece of paper going, we're going to smash the preconceptions of what music is. We're not going to play any of that boring stuff. And then you put on something semi-shit.
2: It's over, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. But I, th- I think we had a, a good inkling. You know, once once people, once the kind of word got round, um, you know, because there was, there was a, like, I always kind of hung out with, like, quite a lot of, like, in these kind of, I wouldn't call them gangs because there was, like, loads of, of girls there and stuff as well. But, you know, our crew that would go, you know, to, like everybody went to a particular bar in the town. So the people that went, there. are the bar that we went to, you know, you're talking about 20, 25 people, and maybe you've got like two or three sets of like 20, 25 people. So, I mean, the first night there was maybe 75 people there. So you knew, and you knew a lot of them were into kind of alternative music. They weren't just in the chart fodder. So you knew you were on safe ground. It wasn't like we were, you know, trying to battle against an audience that was already established. You know what I mean? We We kind of grew it all organically. So people were completely up for it from the very first record you know okay okay you're hearing stuff that they're playing in their in their
1: home that they don't hear on the radio maybe hear it on john Peel or whatever but nowhere else okay so um we'll get into those things in more detail in a bit um what's the first song on the list and, and why did you play it i guess um uh, it's a song called dance your ass off by hamilton bohanan um i have no idea who hamilton Bohannon is Really? I, 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 no really? idea. I mean, I, literally no idea. Really? Oh, I, I recognised the track when I was listening to it earlier, but the name yeah. is well,
2: nothing. Later, it later on, that Petrol Emotion, we actually covered it. I mean, we just kind of knocked it off as a B-side one time. We weren't even planning to put it out, and then the record company heard it, and they wanted to, so they put it as a kind of sort of double A with a song called Swamp. Uh, it was on Polydor Records. But Hamilton Bahannon was very much 70s, I mean, he had he had chart hits, um, maybe maybe four or five. I mean, very much, but very much geared towards the dance floor. So it's kind of like it's an infectious, like an infectious kind of beat, and quite repetitive, but just with like punctuated with like um, loads of chants. Oh, like there's a lot of chanting and stuff like that there, and just kind of hooky things to really hook you in, and uh, like. For example, the Tom Tom Club and Talking Heads were would always reference Hamilton Bohannon. I think that's maybe where I mean I I do remember because they had a song called South African Man that was in the charts when I was younger. But I at the time I wouldn't my budget wouldn't have stretched to to buying it. <laughs> <But> I've, <laughs> I've been buying my glam stuff, so
1: um, okay. I didn't buy well, it until later. Okay, well, I mean um this is the only time i'm going to say this um and i promise i won't say this again to to everyone who's listening if you are listening on our mixcloud or our website in frequency.co.uk, you're now going to listen to dance your ass off by hamilton perhannon if not you're going to hear something go and we'll be back in a bit regular listeners will know that when there's a, a venue involved in this movement, scene, or genre, I always ask the same question. So I'm going to ask the same question now. Um, If you said to me, what was the Lord Raglan in Wolverhampton like in 1990, which was the indie nightclub I used to go to, I would go, right, well, you walked in the bar. It was a bar full of 17-year-olds with stripy stripy T-shirts and long jumpers. Uh, and There was a door at the far end. We weren't allowed through that door. We had to go and queue outside to get into the the late-night bit. Um, Regulars and women were called in early at first because – that's what they did. And then if you were lucky, you, were, you managed to get in. You walked into a sticky dance floor. Um, to the right was a bar that mainly sold cider and blackcurrant. Um, uh, to, just to the right of that was the, I'm going to say the DJ cage, because it was a cage. You could go and make requests, but Vince would generally ignore you and just put an ocean color scene anyway and in the back corner where the light sort of disappeared and it, all the spotlights would disappear into this sticky smoky floor there was this cloakroom when by by woman with a beehive i just remember the beehive and i don't remember anything about it um what can you remember about what this place looked like right where's the toilet was there like a, a big stage was there a, were you up, up high were you down low was it a fire trap
2: Um, it was, it was very kind of state of the art for 1983, you know, it was, it was quite, quite a new building. So it was very, you know, it was very clean, all clean lines, but it was obviously very dark. So you walked in and the bar was to your right. So that was a bar area. And then there was like stairs down on the dance floor. Then there was like a stage. And then above the stage was like a DJ, the DJ booth was kind of like in the right hand corner. And there was like a little uh, set of three steps or whatever up to the booth. So you could only but, really get so two those people three
1: in steps, there. Huh? Those three steps. Was, it always, was there always a queue of people coming up to ask for something?
2: No, people, the thing with it is after, very
1: quickly, people didn't,
2: people knew not to ask for requests. I mean, we 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 asked, I think we, we sort of just put the word around. We said, look, you know, please trust us with what we're going to play. You know, if you, if you want to request, like tell us when we're out. Because the thing about it was there was three of us, right? So we took turns uh, doing DJ. So I would go and do the lights. There was you could do the lights as well, so I used to enjoy doing the lights. So I'd do the lights sometimes. Or else, you could just go out and have a dance for a while as well. So it meant that there, like three of us, weren't just standing there, like you know, spare parts. <laughs> it Was kind of, was kind of <laughs> good,
1: and you could talk to people. You could go out and chat to your friends for a while as well. It does sound. I mean, maybe from the description of what you said just then, and also the fact that it existed already as a more popular sort of venue, um, that it was quite a sort of I've been to indie music nights in in shithole dives, and I've been to indie music nights in well big glamorous nightclubs that just put on an indie night, and you could tell that the rest of the time it was chart toppers and and bangers and whatnot. This feels like it's the latter. Yes, that totally, is- absolutely. Because when we went there, when we
2: went when, when they, like when we went to ask them about getting a night, you know, obviously we had to take Wednesday night, so Wednesday night became our weekend, and I mean a lot of people would have been on the dole and they would have got maybe their check on the Tuesday. So it was perfect, you know? And then obviously on a Friday night, it would be, you know, charged stuff and it would be absolutely rammed. I mean, it was a very, very
1: popular venue. Well, I, I mean, and I'm also thinking because, okay, so I, I mentioned this place a lot because it was basically the first <coughs> the first place I ever went to, uh, the Raglan. The Raglan maybe had about 150 regular people. Okay, we weren't regular people, but regulars. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... It, it sort of existed on its own for maybe a year or two. And then you had the – then indie music got bigger and bigger, early 90s. And you had places like uh, Paloma's, which was above a place called Picasso's, which was one of those shiny nightclubs. But they'd have a band on upstairs, like the Primitives or some, something like that. And then we'd go downstairs for this indie night. And there was another few opened up. And then you had the Dorchester, which was um, – on the Saturday, it was the Midlands, West Midlands' biggest gay night. And on Friday night, it became one of the West Midlands' biggest indie nights. And there was a 1,000 people there on a Friday night in the space of like three years. And I remember going to the Dorch for the first time. And there were little groups of people who'd gone to the Raglan, who were sort of hanging out together going, who are all of these people? These people weren't here two years ago. Everyone suddenly got a band t-shirt and long hair. And I it was great because it meant that we could go out on a Friday night and have have a a big night out. But it was this sort of, it it sort of snowballed apropos from nothing. I mean, I've heard that obviously back in the 80s, there were other much cooler indie clubs in Wolverhampton, but I I was too young for them. So as far as I'm concerned, it all started in 1989. Um, All right, we're going to get, in a bit, we'll talk about how it was to actually put the the thing together. But what's the second track? Uh, It's Africa Bombata looking for the perfect beat. Okay, so so the first track had some chanting, and now we've got Africa Bambata. I'm starting to sense an early theme here.
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, this is these were records that were, you know, they were they were still like hip hop was still very early days, and I mean it hadn't like Africa Bombata hadn't charted or anything. I mean, Planet Rock obviously was has become recognised now as one of the kind of one of the very early sort of classics of hip hop. So it was still very much like an underground thing. So it was an introduction for a lot of people and a lot of people loved it, you know, so it was kind of, it felt really good to be introducing this kind
1: of sound and it was, you know, it was very, very fresh. We hadn't Um, really heard anything like that before. I'm going to ask this about most of these songs now. Was there a certain time of the night this would come on?
2: No, I mean, we really would mix it up. You know, you would get like, um, I mean, obviously, we'd try and keep it quite dancey, but we did, we did play like rock songs as well, as you'll sort of find out later. I mean, and, and this was around the time as well, maybe not represented by the, the music that I've actually picked, but I mean, you know, if you would have said, what did the crowd look like? It was kind of, uh, there was quite a lot of proto goths so, there, you know, that would have been around the time. <laughs> You know, so you would have had, like, I mean, my girlfriend at the time was quite gothy, and, you know, all this, like, my sister, people like that, they had the kind of soap in their hair all sort of teased up quite high and stuff, you know. A lot of them looked like sort of Susie and the Banshees or whatever. A lot of backcombing, a lot of crimping. A lot of backcombing going on, a lot of patchouli oil, (laughs) that sort of thing, you know, (laughs) and a lot of black clothes. But, you know, open-minded, they weren't, like, they just they weren't coming just to hear You know, goth music, which we couldn't cater to it. You know, there probably wasn't enough, you know, music to play for the whole night by that stage anyway. So, you know, it was people. You know, people just were. You know, a lot of people. I would say there were probably people there that maybe never even danced as well. Do you know what I mean? They just loved the music, so they came there just to listen as much as anything else. You know, because I mean, when you think about it now, for a lot of younger people, I, I don't know, music seems to be like a kind of background thing for them. Do you know what I mean? It's not something. That they put their full attention on anymore when they're listening to music. They're obviously doing something else as well, and that yeah. just wasn't the case. then. plus, the the venue being a a fairly new, um, a, in a fairly new venue, it had a fantastic system. It had a really really great PA system. So I mean, everything sounded fantastic. You know.
1: Obviously, I mean, people listening, they've all they've all got their own experience of certain nights they used to go to, whether it was indie nights or rock nights or just generally club nights. Um, and I found as I've moved around, number one, the first time you go to an indie night say, uh, or a club night, not in your hometown and they're playing different songs, freaks you out a little bit because you think, well, everyone plays this. Everyone plays this. Everyone plays this. And second of all, the ones I used to go to, they would have segments, you know, there'd be, I don't know, the 20 minutes of of Electronic Chemical Brothers Prodigy, which would go into Rage Against the Machine and Rock, which would go into indie for a bit. And then go, I used to go to some places in Dublin, when I lived in Dublin, and it was just Madonna, followed by Nirvana, followed by pop, followed by this. And I was like, if I'm going to get up to dance, I want to at least commit to three or four songs, knowing full well I'm not going to be up and down, up and down, like it's a wedding disco. Um, how did you put together your... Did you put together your set list or was it? Yeah, how did you do it? Yeah, well,
2: as um, <clears throat> we used to meet up uh, mon- maybe Monday and maybe sometimes two nights, Monday and Tuesday night. We'd meet up in, um, in John O'Neill's house and we would write down a set list. So we would listen to some tracks and see what went well together. And as you say, we would, you know, if you're getting up to dance or whatever, we'd do like two or three dancey ones, and we'd maybe do uh you know there'd be like more of like a sort of rock one where you could dance to but it wasn't like dancing per se do you know what i mean so people could do their um their chicken dance or whatever
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh well the chicken i found that the chicken dance only turned up when i had when i cut my hair off when i had long hair (laughs) it swayed and the second the long hair went i found i was doing a sort of chicken thing and i didn't know how to dance for about a year (laughs) I still. Some say I still don't know how to dance.
2: But if you think about it, like, uh, if you just think about the chronology, because like you, you, you keep mentioning indie music, this is one of my sort of things that I'm quite tough on. Because you think about, like, the C81 tape, which the NME giveaway, which is still one of the best, I think, of, of any of those... Um, Giveaway, music giveaway, things that they did. And if you you, uh, examine the track listing, it's really, it's all over the place, really. You know, you've got everything on there. And I would say by the time you got to like C86, you know, there's no black music on there anymore. Like everything is kind of jangling guitars and stuff, which is why I kind of, even though we were a guitar band, I kind of, I didn't like a lot of it, you know, because it was like a bit like a busman's holiday. Like I wanted to hear all their sounds and stuff as well. So I, don't no, no, that, that, I don't understand why there's a, a still such a thing about C-86. Why is there not something about C-81? Or what you was on C-82? C-81?
1: Yeah, c I, 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 I can remember things that were on C-86, but when C-86 came out, I was 12. Ah, there you go. So it's on? eight. What, what was on C-81? Could you remember anything? Yeah, yeah, like Scritti Pitti, um,
2: The Sweetest Girl. Uh, and then you would have like sort of like an avant-avant-garde uh, jazz track, um, and then you would have like l- the sax player who left X-Ray Specs, Laura Logic. You would have Orange Juice. You well, would that's, have, that's weird.
1: Uh, you said where weird. You just said Laura Logic because I heard I never heard that name ever until literally a week ago when I recorded one of these with John Henderson from Tiny Global Productions, and he chose. Laura Logic as, as one of his. Um, what you're describing sounds like a John Peel mixtape.
2: Yeah, it was very much, yeah, it was very, very it was very much what John Peel was playing
1: at the time, you know. Yeah, and the eclecticism that came with that.
2: Yeah, but I mean, you know, as I say to you, like I would say you know, at least maybe 40% of the tracks, maybe more, were, were black groups as well, do you know what I mean? So it wasn't, ex- it wasn't exclusively like a white sort of Brit thing
1: yeah um okay um, so as did you ever feel that dj power you know that thing of i mean even going back in the day to yeah, sort of, of northern course, soul yeah, club right, right, you wow. have that power you can you can influence what everybody wants to listen to you can influence what people Falling in love over, <laughs> absolutely. But I think what you,
2: I think, and this, I, I can, you can definitely see this with some of the DJs whose egos just got very out of control very quickly. I think sometimes when you're you're playing a record and you see the power of the record and everybody in the room is responding to it, that you know sometimes you start thinking because you've chosen that track that maybe you've made
1: it yourself as well. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That, that sort of takes over. <laughs> i I, I suppose i suppose there's also that moment where you're i i I did one or two very unsuccessful indie nights back in the day mainly worked with my mate on sort of private parties where they would hire at the venue but there was always that time of oh i'm gonna play this no one's dancing right rage against the machine (laughs) (gasps) and then sulk sulk to myself that they didn't like what i wanted them to like but maybe i I need to injure yeah, you like, introduced it earlier and I don't yeah know. well I mean
2: I think we could get away with the odd one that people would just sort of listen to you know and then you'd think well we're never playing that again <laughs> no matter how much you loved it you know what I mean it's like you need some kind of response um, okay okay what's the
1: third track we're going to listen to uh, the third track is I Love You by Yellow um, Yellow are the the ones that did the just because I think it was in my head last week when I was really busy, my brain started, I was running around trying to get stuff done. Yeah. And my brain started going, bomb, bomb. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's the race, yellow, right? Yeah, the race, okay.
2: yeah. And it was used <laughs> on TV a lot. And they were basically these two Swiss millionaires. And like the singer, he was already, I mean, he would have been in his early 40s, I think, when they when they came out. And uh, it was really funny because remember. I've got an image of a big mustache for some yeah, reason. Yeah, he, he, image looked, of he used to wear, I mean, you know, they were very, he was very, very dapper. He always wore like, you know, probably Savile Row suits. You know what I mean? They carried a cane and, you know, I mean, it was very, sort of, very much so sophisticated, you know, but he, they had a good sense of humor as well. I think that's what, you know, that that's why they were, that was their saving grace. I think if they had been more whole faced, it would have put, put a lot of people off. And I subsequently, <laughs> years later, I got to meet him. <laughs> whenever uh, we were signed to Polydor um, myself and the singer Steve Mack we were invited to it was like a polygram conference and you know whenever we got signed up they they invited us along and we were one of their new signings and I got to meet, he's called Dieter Meyer and it was really funny and I, of course I was quite I was a bit uh, overly refreshed let's say and I met him and I was telling him in great detail how <laughs> How we used to play his records in Derry at our club night. I'm sure you thought, mm, so what, mate? You know?
1: I'm sure it was. Kind like, yeah, that's, for that's, him. That's, that's why I'm a millionaire. Everybody <laughs> plays my records.
2: But I remember he was just like, uh, treating me with kid gloves. I thought, and he probably didn't understand my accent, especially after a few drinks, maybe, as well.
1: Right. I mean, we, well, we can't. Talk about a, a disco or a night in in Derry in the mid '80s without talking about life around it, you know, I'd be very re- remiss, re- very remiss of us if we did that. Now, I don't, I don't want to get. I don't. <laughs> it's a very sensitive subject, obviously. And there'll be people because people do actually listen to this. There'll be people listening to this with opinions. Uh, of, I don't really want to go into. The political side of it too much, but more. What was life like mid 80s in Derry?
2: Well, as I said to you, I, I was away. I'd been away at uh, university for four years. So I came back and like I'd come back uh, from time to time to see my parents and stuff, but it was the first time that I kind of lived back in Derry again. I was back at my parents' place. And it seemed to me that things had definitely lightened up a bit. And the the thing about it is, like in Derry, I mean, this this was the same during the punk time as well. Like the the punk thing really brought people together from both sides. So anybody who was really into music, you know, they were completely opposed to any kind of sectarianism, you know. And I mean, like I grew up – like I grew up – in a Catholic area, but then I moved to an area that was kind of fifty-fifty for a while. So I was going to a Catholic school, but a lot of my f- friends in the street to play football with or whatever were all Protestants. I was in the Protestant Cubs. I went to a Church of Ireland service with them, and it was an amazing eye-opener because it was very, very close to Catholicism. And I mean, they even had communion and stuff. So I was, I was very lucky. I was shown at a very early age, and I had loads and loads of Protestant friends that there's no difference, do you know what I mean? So I had a really good kind of overview that a lot of people didn't have if they didn't leave their area or their ghetto or whatever, you know? And I think that's still part of the problem is that the people that kind of like keep everything going, they've never mixed with people from the other side and they have a warped opinion or a warped view of what they're like or whatever, do you know what I mean? And so for us, I mean, we had, everybody came to ours you know it was, it was people that were into music you know the people that are into music they don't care about religion you know nobody was religious anyway everybody had thrown away all the sort of conditionings that they'd sort of been beaten under and, I, and I
1: imagine even even just just going across to, to most people's experiences whether you're from a small town uh a tiny village or, or a big city um a lot of people who got into alternative music, especially before it became massively mainstream, um, did it because they didn't feel they fit in with whatever absolutely. was going yeah. I mean, on around you know, them at the time.
2: Yeah, absolutely, you know, especially the like gay people. I mean, you know, the punk the punk thing really threw up quite a lot of you know a lot of the gay people were able to kind of come out because of punk, and they were able to meet like minded people as well. And it mostly would move away then, of course, because by that stage in Ireland still wasn't that. Tolerant. I mean, they wouldn't do that today. Now, there's, you know, gay people have their own scene and stuff now, and it's much more accepted than it was then. And it seems like a long time ago. But the thing about it was, there was always, like, I, obviously, stuff was still going on, and there was still presence of soldiers and police or whatever. But to be honest with you, <sighs> You know, if you grew up in it, you just became accustomed to all that stuff about getting searched and stuff. But it didn't seem to be, I, I didn't feel the same um, threat of violence that I had before I'd left. Do you know what I mean? When I, when I went okay. off, when I left in 1979, I mean, the thing about it was there was still violence there, but it was more to do with, um, you know, drunk people or just, you know, just gangs of, horrible little wankers, you know, for want <laughs> of a better word. You know, it's just... You, you do get wank- wankers are universal. right? universal. I happens. mean, I, I don't think, I mean, up to a point, I don't think it was much more different from maybe somewhere like in Wolverhampton or whatever on a Friday, Saturday night. You know, you well, just... Well, that, well to that's
1: the weird thing because I am from Wolverhampton. Yeah. So I did go out to Wolverhampton. Um, and growing up in the UK in... so well, I, I, My school years were in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I only really knew what was going on in Northern Ireland because my parents were quite political. They were very left-wing politically, yeah. but they they told me what was happening. Yeah. Um, British TV under Thatcher didn't. No, of course there was there was nothing. And I remember a kid called Graham who came to, to came to our school maybe the fourth year. He was a big Smiths fan, yeah. and um, this girl I fancied went out with him. So I, I didn't like him for that. <laughs> but he was suddenly regaling everybody at that, at this school about you know having to step walk past uh soldiers on the street and you know all and you know, all of all of these tales that now I'm, I'm much more aware of. But at the time we were all like, oh, tell us what it's like, Graham. We've never heard like we'd never heard of it. Yeah. You know, it was it just wasn't on telly at all.
2: Well I mean um, that was why we like whenever we did that petrol emotion that we would put information on the sleeves. You know, it was just it's just civil rights stuff. That's all that we ever well we just wanted to be like an alternative Information service for people who wanted to know what was going on, but of course we got tired with uh we got tired with the brush that we were like these republican sympathizers, whatever we you know it was it was very easy to turn it back in our face again, and we were maybe a little bit naive sometimes, but I mean it was meant from a good place, you know, and it was never and it was never sectarian obviously okay, okay but no, but I'm, just one more thing before yeah. we go I mean you know obviously stuff was going on still. But I can't remember, for that, I mean, if you think about it, so I came back home June 83 and then I moved to London in October 84. That's like 15, 16 months, whatever it is. And to be honest, with you, I can't remember, like there wasn't, in my, in my memory anyway, I don't remember like a big incident where something major had happened, you know what I mean? And then no. obviously when I, like I, I've lived in London since 1984, so. Stuff like Dairy Girls was very interesting for me to see how they...
1: Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get onto to Girls a little bit later. Okay. Um, pro- now is probably a good time to move on to the next track. Sure. Um, which is Hip Hop Bebop Don't Stop. I don't know why I said that wrong. I'm literally just reading it out. Um, hip Hop Bebop Don't Stop by Man Parish. Um, we're, we're still in the dancey hip hop, right? Yeah, well, I mean, this is,
2: I mean, the, the guy, there's a guy called John Roby who was like the engineer and he engineered like the Babada records and he engineered the Man Parish one as well. So it was very much like a kind of New York thing. And I think like hip hop bebop was used in uh, like one of Simon Pegg's movies. Uh was the one about the the zombies. Is it,
1: oh yeah. Um,
2: I think it's Shaun of the Dead. Yeah. Shaun of the Dead. Yeah. I'm nearly sure that's on the soundtrack or they use a little snippet of it during the movie as well. So it was funny how it kind of became quite popular around then. But at the time, you know, it, it, it's just, I mean, whenever people hear it, it, it still sounds like it was made in the future. Do you know what I mean? It's really interesting that these some of these records from that time, that were kind of, you know, they, they obviously wanted to have a kind of futuristic vibe. And it still sounds like, it's a bit like in like rock music terms, if you listen to early Roxy music, it still sounds like it was made 40 years time or whatever and not, in the early 70s. So I think a, a lot of these records, have, I think they've, they've dated very, very well, actually.
1: I, I cut you off a little bit ago because I wanted us to keep on track timing, but we were just moving into the idea of, of say, popular culture representations of the area of the time and in particular um the cu- the recent uh big success big smash um tv show dairy girls which basically showed the life of a bunch of young schoolgirls li- living their normal life with the trouble sort of happening around them yeah um so i mean how representative i mean was this more representative so was everyone's life just this normal sort of the normal life of growing up and, and, and boys and girls and, and boyfriends and girlfriends and, and nerds and and, and and punk kids and yeah. sneaking out when your parents aren't paying attention. They just happen to be soldiers around. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I always say if you want the
2: representation of what it was like growing up during the Troubles, I think Gregory's Girl, which is set in Scotland, I think that's a really good parallel. I mean, you know, if you can imagine, like, Growing up in Derry, it was just like Gregory's Guild, but then you had all the army and everything going around you. And the thing about it was, stuff like in the early 70s, in the 70s was the worst time. And, you know, at one stage, something was going off. They were like a bomb or a shooting every single day. or It was definitely a riot. But it, it kind of was contained in certain areas. So if you kind of stayed away from there, you were usually okay. But, I mean, I had to go to my grammar school. I had to walk through the, the box side. Um, every day. And so, you know what, you just couldn't avoid it. But I mean, it, it's interesting how um, how quickly you can just get used to all this mad stuff going on around you. And if ever anything really bad w- happened, there, there used to be this thing where if, if something really, really sad happened, then a really great joke would go around the town like yeah, maybe a week yeah. later or something because people had to have that release. Do you know what I mean? It's like Johnny Mitchell always says, you know, it's like laughing and crying, it's the same release. I, I do think, I mean, that, that gallows humour. Uh, oh, you I go basically- Derry, you, somebody will tell you. like when I, There was one time one of my friends came to pick me up from uh, Aldergrove Airport, which is an hour and a half to Derry, and he told me jokes the whole way down the car. For an hour and a half, and every one of them was really funny. And I thought, well, that just never happens in England. I just, I don't know anybody, any English people that tell me
1: jokes. I think, I I think it's because you were living in London. Um, I've, (laughs) I've criticised. I've I've got a lot of love for the south of. I lived in London. I lived in Brighton. I've got a lot of very good friends and very good memories. But I mean, I'm from Wolverhampton, and it's a shithole, and we know it's a shithole. But I mean, my wife, um, she came to visit. We, were, we hadn't we'd been together about a year she's from cork um she was living in dub dublin at the time really? and she came she came to visit me in wolverhampton i'd gone back for like three months and um, i was working a couple of hours in a pub so she had to go and just kill some time yeah and she was like i was standing at a bus stop and this old man just started having this really nice conversation yeah, with me yeah. and then this woman on the bus started having this really nice conversation <laughs> with me. and i was like yeah, it's Wolverhampton. We'll, <laughs> we'll talk to each other. And it's still one of those places where, obviously, it doesn't happen anymore because there are no new jokes. But every night in the pub was just joke after joke after joke after joke after joke. And then I moved down south, and it was like, mm-hmm.
2: No, I was mm-hmm. definitely, yeah. There's, <laughs> there's a thing in London that drives me crazy. And, I mean, we used to make jokes about it. You know, you see these people, usually I would used to say they're Irish, but this is from the kind of the, the late 80s. If you get on the Tube at, at Heathrow <laughs> and you'd see these people, and they usually were Irish, so you just just get off the plane and they're coming over to see and maybe to do their work or whatever, and they're looking around to see who they can talk to, and every English person has a paper up. <laughs> when, when People used to read papers, and they were not gonna, they're not going to
1: um, interact with you at all. Christmas Day, we were living in Greenwich, well, back of Greenwich, Blackheath. Yeah part of london and we went for a walk on in, in greenwich park and it's christmas day it's the afternoon there are couples there are families there are people walking about in the middle of the afternoon and i did that thing of sort of every walk you walk past you sort of have a half look, <laughs> and if if they catch your eye, you're going to wish happy Christmas. Yeah. not one single person in an no, everybody's hour. Everybody's terrified. Everybody's Whereas terrified in Wolverhampton. You cannot walk to the shop on Christmas Day with without someone randomly shouting, "What are items going Christmas?" <laughs> or 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 shouting a bit of sleigh at you. It's impossible not to. No, no, um, Derry. I think yeah. Derry.
2: I Derry's the same. I mean, like. People at Derry are just amazing. I mean, you know, as I say, if, if anything really terrible happened, I mean, the way people came together and the way they looked after each other, I mean, I get could get very emotional talking about it, you know, because there's, there's a great there's a great sense of humor. There was a great heart there as well. And as you say, I love it when I go back and people are just chatting to each other, you know, and like my wife's Japanese and she... Her and my daughter, they, they always get embarrassed with me when, I, when I'm when i out. If I say hello to somebody, do you know what I mean? And I'm like, what is your problem? Do you know what I mean? I'm just being nice. I'm just being civil. But I think there's only one time that I've really interacted with a stranger. And all my time, now I've been here 35 years plus. It was one day I was going from uh, Beckenham to Victoria which is a really nice train journey as well. It's really pleasant to look out the window. But I had this book, and it's hotel, uh, hotel California. It's about the singer-songwriters in Laurel Canyon. And this woman, like about my age, she just went, oh, that book's brilliant, isn't it? And I was like, yeah, isn't it fantastic? So we actually had a conversation. That is the only time in all my time here I can't think of many other instances where you've connected with a stranger about, you know, like a book or something like that. So it was lovely as well. Like, obviously, I remember
1: it vividly still, and I wish it happened more often. Um, no, obviously, before we get loads of... Ugh, before one person tweets me with, oi, don't, don't slag off London. I'm always going to slag off London. Um, I love it. I love to visit here. I lived there for four years. I don't think I could ever do it again. And also, yeah, I, most people I, I, who defend... Like I'm a, I'm most a, I'm people a Londoner who, now. A, I am a... Pretty, but most people who defend London aren't from London. They just they live in I think in that's London. what's good about it, you say I think that's what's good
2: about London. It's like, we, we don't feel... We think that it's really apart from the rest of England, really. You know, it's like... Because uh, I'd say to you, like, of course, I've got English friends, but not that many. I'd say most of <laughs> them are, you know, like I've got second generation Spanish. We, we had, Like whenever we had a big crew around the time of the band, we had Canadians, Americans, French. You know what I mean? It was a real international crew. Scottish, obviously, as well. But I think whenever we were on tour, I think we used to really enjoy going up north and, I mean, we were we would have been turned at one of the worst times as well you know around the miner strike and stuff so we saw how uh, communities were were completely de- uh, decimated and I, you would be amazed as well at how how many second generation irish people that that were really happy about that petrol emotion i think it helped them to give them their to help them with their identity i think a lot of them were struggling a lot of them had gone to school and were getting grief because, you know, they, their their parents were Irish. And, you know, during the the bombing campaign and stuff, you know, they were getting a lot of grief. And they were, you know, they were trying to find their, their identity. They were struggling with parts of it or whatever. So I think we really kind of helped them, actually. I think that's one of the things I'm sort of most proud about, the about the band, actually.
1: Okay, okay. Well, well, well we visit the band and, and stuff like that in, in, in a short time. Sure. Um, um I'm I'm doing what I never do, which is keep an eye on time. Yeah, yeah, Maybe because ahead, ahead, a, co- a couple of times in the last five episodes I've got oh, it's two hours. We really need to get to the second track. Um what one, two, three, four, five. What is our fifth track? Uh, Grieving with Mr. Blow by Mr. Blow. I think it's like a
2: one-off. I think it was like a one-off hit. I'm not sure if there was any other ones. I certainly don't remember. It's an instrumental, it's kinda of like a northern soul thing which was we were very keen on as well at that time there was a few good really good compilations that came out you know like cheap compilations with a lot of northern soul songs that, and it would have been due to the popularity of soft cell for example Oh, and tainted
1: love and yeah yeah stuff tainted like that. love
2: yeah so tainted love obviously was like you know was number 1 for ages and everybody loved it and then they did, uh, I think they did another, I'm nearly sure they did another Northern Soul song as well. Well,
1: that's what? the thing about Northern Soul. Uh, yeah, they did Watt as well, which is all. That's yeah. it. Oh, over the years, the amount of tracks I have, There's a Ghost in My House would yeah. be another example. Yeah. Yeah. That, I go, that I've heard. And then later on, when I've got this great Northern Soul compilation of hours now, I was like, oh, oh. I've, I mean, now I know everything's a cover. And everything i was chatting to someone who came on this pod recently and their mind was blown when i explained to them that girls just want to have fun was not by cindy lauper yeah it was some dude in the 70s yeah which just comes across as creepy <laughs> um, or i, I was or i was a big populate itself fan when i was younger and they had a very popular track called called beaver patrol which was this sleazy misogynistic thing and then i, sh- I showed i played it to someone the other day i went you yeah, know this is a 1960s psychedelic rock track and they were what I was like yeah yeah YouTube YouTube you boom and they were just staring at me going I did not know and so it's really weird when you find this stuff. Um okay yeah so Mr. Blow 1970s bit of an instrumental um instrumentals for me fit at the end of a night right I mean it's quite ballsy to throw it into the middle of a night.
2: Uh I think I would have been one of the ones that would have been like the last half hour.
1: You know what did you have a did you have a final song? was there a particular final sort of quirky Muppets or old we'll meet again? What was there a, was there a final track that you played it and everyone knew that was it, you're going home?
2: Um not that I remember, to be honest, because the thing about the, the good thing about it was it was like we were finding records basically every week. Every, we were finding new records every week. So it wasn't the set thing, but I could tell you the one the, the very last record that we played before we shut it down which is when the music's over by the doors.
1: Okay. Yeah, okay. And
2: and that, people were no. crying. People-
1: if you asked me to, to, to give you a list of bands from Northern Ireland, you know, undertones, uh, you guys, uh, through to Ash, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, was there anything? What was going on mid-'80s? Um, not necessarily just in Derry, but even surrounding who were who were the ones coming through there there wasn't i mean i think it had kind of died down a little bit
2: after so you had the initial kind of punk thing in northern ireland you had like all the belfast bands you had undertones and the moondogs and dairy moondogs got a tv program people have seemed to have forgotten now which is just incredible
1: they got they got to what well, okay number one it's a band i that i don't remember they got a punk band were given a TV program. What like the monkeys? What what, what was it like? Yeah, I mean, that, that was
2: what they were sort of trying to do. Yeah, but yeah, they were called the Moondogs and they had a they had a six program deal on ITV, you know, like half five in the afternoon or whatever. And it just it didn't work. I mean, I think it was the wrong thing for them. I and mean, I was actually very friendly with a bass player at the time, Jackie Hamilton, who's a friend of mine. But it was really weird. It was like he was a friend of mine, and then all of a sudden he was playing in this band and And he was in, and they were kind of, you know, they were obviously uh, on the Undertones coattails, but I mean, Jackie had never really, I'd never thought that he was a big music fan. He wasn't like me, you know, he was kind of obsessive about it. He he used to like um, the Beatles at the
1: Hollywood Bowl, that sort of thing he'd listen to. (laughs) He was just. Okay. So let's, let's ask this question. You, you moved back to Derry. You became friends friends with Sean and Neil. Yeah.
2: Uh, Sorry. Is it Sean or John? You can call him either. John, Sean. It's okay. He's John
1: again. Okay, made friends with Sean slash John O'Neill. Were you a fan of The Undertones before that? Yeah, yeah, I was. I mean, I I was at
2: school with Damien, who's a guitar player. So me and Damien, like Damien's the person I know uh, longest. We were both at like primary school. We started the same primary school. and both. So that was when we were four. So I've known him since I was four which is pretty incredible.
1: And, and when did you start, when did you decide to form that Petrol Emotion? Was it this this year or so of playing tunes at the left bank that sort of rekindled or or gave you an idea? Was it was it a lot later on?
2: Um, no, no. Oh, I mean, whenever, like, I mean, I was encouraging Joe, and I, d- I didn't think he would, like, I mean, I was playing in this other band called Bam Bam and the Collins. so I'll tell you a little bit about them there and the local scene. They were like the, I, I'm biased, obviously, but I think they were the best band, and they lost their guitar player. They'd already been going for a while, and then their guitar player—I forget what happened—moved we moved away for a while or something. So they asked me to start playing guitar, and I'd always wanted to be in a band. It was really funny. I'd actually given up. I'd actually given up thinking that anything was ever going to happen. It was really funny. I thought I was only twenty-two. <laughs> I thought I was too past old, it, man. I thought I was too it. it's, it's just ridiculous, actually. So I ended up. I was in Bam Bam the Colin. So at the same time, I'm still friends. I'm friends with John, and we're starting to do the the left bank. So he sees me in this band, and I think he saw something in me that I maybe didn't see in myself, you know. So he what, he,
1: what did did you own a van? Was that it? You had the you had a van? No, I didn't
2: actually go. I mean, whenever I joined Bam Bam, they actually had this guy who was their manager. I mean, the only and he 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 was in charge of their accounts and everything. So I sorted that out pretty quickly. This guy was just he worked in a shop or something. I was like, well, why has he got your money? You know? So anyway, I sort of took I was a little bit older than them. They were two, three years younger than me. So I sort of took charge a wee bit. But we were we were um we were picked, we were showcased for uh Northern Ireland TV. There's a little 30, a really great little 30-second clip of the band at that time. And the kind of lineup that I was in, we had an extra percussionist. So if you can imagine it's kind of cross between Adam Ants and the early Echo and the Bunny That was the kind of vibe. So it was a really, really, really good. And you know, we had our little, we had our little audience. So John and his wife really liked uh, this band, Bam Bam the colon, So he approached me not that long after. He was getting, you know, when I first met him, he was but down the dumps, and then playing this music and enjoying the the left bank and enjoying its kind of little success as well it really fired him up again and it started inspiring him and he approached me and he said, look, I've got a couple of songs. Would you like to, you know, play and let's see if we can get something going again. So I I was actually in two bands and doing the the, the DJ. So, I mean, it's still one of the happiest times of my life and (laughs) one of the most creative times as well. And So everything kind of grew out of that organically. And then we had enough, We like, we had enough we had about i think we had like 10 songs we did a little four track demo just the two of us with a drum machine and we played with a few people and got a really positive response so then we decided to move he he it was really funny because john's a real home bird and he actually moved back to Derry again once he left the petrels. and uh he said oh we've you know we've got to go to london if we've if, you know if we want to make it if we want to have any kind of chance we're going to have to move to london so i was kind of to be honest with you, I didn't really want to move at all. I was really happy there. I had a girlfriend and I'm sure if I'd have stayed, we might even have got married or whatever. Who knows? But, you know, I was very happy. So it was interesting that we were uprooted and went and went away, but it, it was the, definitely the right thing to do. But Bam Bam continued. They followed us over to London. They made a couple of records and they supported us quite a few times and. In London and we all still hung out and stuff. So a lot of that crowd, I'd say half, there was a, there was half the crowd from that Left Bank days. They, some of them moved to Manchester and some of them are still there now. And the rest of us, we went to London. So there was a big kind of exodus after the Left Bank finished.
1: Very quickly, before we get to the next track, just because... I've heard this story three times and also when I did my cursory Wikipedia research beforehand, it popped up again. Did Paul Whitehouse audition? Yes, he did. yeah, he did, yeah. He did. Okay. Because yeah. I heard that story, I was like, this sounds like something he'd make up. This sounds like a Paul Whitehouse joke. No, no. Uh, the thing about it
2: is, well, you know, we didn't know until he said it. And then as soon as he said it, I was like, of course. Because I, remember, I remembered him. <laughs> you know, but obviously he wasn't Paul Whitehouse, and he was just this funny guy. He, he, I mean, he had quite a good voice, but he, he was doing like, um, I mean, I remember he was telling me at the time that he was doing like a sort of Elvis impersonator and doing karaoke in and, uh, and pubs in the East End or whatever, you know. Um, but the thing about him was he was hilarious. So, I mean, you know, he was... See, <laughs> so there was part of you really wanted to kind of get him in, but we just knew he wasn't right, you know, he just wasn't the right person. But then, we, you know, obviously we didn't know it was him until he said it. But the the thing about it was he he whenever he did say it, it was a time that they had Fergal Sharky on, and Sharkey completely. If you look, if you watch it again now, Sharky completely cut off his anecdote. He could he didn't even finish saying it because actually, yeah, there's, I a, there's a there's a bit of bad blood between Sharky and the rest of the
0: Undertones. So unfortunately, so I, I thought it was a bit petty to be honest to him doing that, you know. But there you go.
1: Um, okay, so when you sent me through the list of songs, you sent me through the song, this next song, but with the choice of two versions. Yeah, we played both of them. That's why we used to play both of them. Ah, uh, well, not the same night, right? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, you could play. You could. Okay, you could play the both. Well, we're only gonna we're only gonna listen to one. Yeah, um, yeah, what's the song and which but one are we, we going yeah, to listen to? You could
2: choose which one you want to play. Well, I mean, the Eddie Grant one is the original, and obviously, it's. In a lot of ways it's richer, it has like horns and stuff, so it's really kinda really, really funky. Whereas the uh the Rocker's Revenge one, again, it's kinda in the same mold as Perfect Beat and Man Parish, and might even have John Roby as the engineer as
1: well. Um, well I mean at this point I'm not I'm not even gonna say which one we're gonna listen to. I'm literally just gonna choose, probably based on runtime. Yeah, okay. I do feel slightly bad um i i knew a lot about that petrol emotion and there was a couple of songs i absolutely did um early 90s um and then when i was doing a bit of research for this i was like i've never heard of the everlasting yeah i feel really bad what did you do you moved to london so you had this night you had this night you moved to london you formed that petrol emotion um if what 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 happened next Bringing us up to now, you don't have to go into too much detail. And what are you up to these days? So basically, tell me your entire life story of the last 30, <laughs> the last 30 minutes. <laughs> well, Bits we, and bobs. We, we <laughs> moved
2: to London, and the first year was pretty was pretty hard. But we we managed to get a flat. I still don't know how we had done it. We got a council flat in the borough, and that became like a band, HQ. And John had a little flat with his wife and up in Hackney. So we were rehearsing. On before we left Ireland, we got the drummer Kieran, who he used to dep for the undertones whenever their drummer, their drummer uh, Billy, he was forever leaving. So Kieran actually dept for the undertones when he was fifteen. And it's really funny. You can watch it on YouTube. He looks like he looks about 12. It's really funny. But he looks like he's really bored out of his head as well. It looks like the drumming is just kind of beneath him, you know. It's really, really
1: hilarious. I, I do like that. I do like that idea about um young drummers we did an epi- on our sister podcast temporary fandoms uh we did two episodes on buzzcocks yeah and, uh, and our two guests were john henderson who was on a previous one of these and paul hanley from from the fall and there, john brought up this time that he went when he was a kid to he couldn't go to see the fall he had to stand outside and he saw marky smith and he waved at marky smith and paul was like yeah i was too young to go on that tour i wasn't allowed in
2: well, yeah, well, like it was really funny because I think we had the kind of life for Kieran, but he, I mean, he looked so young and stuff as well. But it's funny, you're asking me about going to see the undertones. I, I used to go and see the undertones, but again, I, I looked younger than I was, so I couldn't. Like, my friends used to get in, they used to play this place called the Casper, but it was basically like a porta cabin within a building that had been already blown up or something. So
1: you could stand outside the porta cabin and hear perfectly well. You didn't, didn't how young outside. we've had we've had American guests on in the past and we've talked about how um I don't know if I was 17, I could probably still go and see bands at the local indie nightclub or whatever, get away with it. Like they didn't check IDs that stringently back in the early 90s, especially if it was an, an alternative type place. In the US 21 or nothing. How young did you look, Raymond, to not get in? Well, back
2: I, in- an idea. I got when I like I'd been going to this pub for about a year, year and a half, and I actually got thrown out on my 18th birthday with my, <laughs> with my girlfriend who was actually older than me, but she looked really young as well. So I don't know. But the thing about it was where the where the Casbah was, where the Undertones played, it was like right in the center of town, and that was within the the walls, basically, though because Derry's a walled city. And there was like a checkpoint, you know, the army or the police or whatever would have been very close by. So, you know, they they couldn't, you know, they were very strict about yeah. you know, if anybody looked. I mean, if you looked older, you would get in, obviously, because they weren't looking at your ID or anything. But, you know, if you looked a bit young, you weren't getting in.
1: Yeah, I, I guess growing up in Wolverhampton, we didn't have that, that same police presence. Although... I have this strong, this, the strongest memory I have. And obviously, for somebody who grew up in, in Northern Ireland, this is, this, is, this is nothing. But I remember walking back, probably from the Ragland, so I might have been about 17, um, one, midnight, one o'clock in the morning. I, had, I know I had a, a bag of chips in my hand. And I, I was drunk. I was an idiot. I was a kid. I threw my chip wrapper on the floor, and I, I stumbled on it. And this white van pulls up about five minutes, five seconds later, pulls open, and it's filled with coppers. And this copper gets out and I'm quite tall. And he was so much taller than me. And he sort of gives me this bit of a speech going, we see, we saw you did that. Could you just go and pick it up? There's a bin on the other side of the road. I was like, no problem. No problem. I stagger back. I pick it up across the road. I throw it in. I'm walking down the other side of the street. He goes, mate, mate, come here. Come here a second. He then gives me this five-minute speech about how they're on this big anti-ledger thing, Wolverhampton's a shit tip, trying to clean it up, blah, 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 blah. And I'm standing next to this, this open side door of this van, and this coppers staring out at me. And eventually, he goes, look, you're not going to get anything official, but you've got to come down the station and just sign some things. Wow. I was like, what? He went, he went, you've got to come down and sign some things. And I go to get in the van, and he puts his hand on my shoulder and goes, mate, I'm only fucking joking. Jumps in the van. <laughs> the van drives off. Three of them lean out, banging the side, shouting "wanker, wanker." And I'm standing there in the street, going, "The fuck just happened?" <laughs> no, you wouldn't have been that nice and dirty, believe me. <laughs> um, okay, okay, okay. I digressed with a personal anecdote, which is not what this this thing is for. Um. Well, so we got we got to that petrol emotion. What we'll do is we will do the next track, and then we'll carry on with what happened afterwards um we move it oh we're moving into more my era or my type of thing next um what have we got a confusion by new order i think that's also because you, you also suggested blue monday and i suddenly thought blue monday is really fucking long isn't it
2: <laughs> well, i conf- I mean you could probably you could probably just fade
1: uh
2: confusion no. two of um, as well
1: okay so i mean what's New, this would be this would have been about the same time yeah blue monday uh true faith this was new orders sort of this was their good bit i guess well again of, of their to, well
2: again there's a there, this is addressed in that i've sort of in this list that i've made because again I'm, I'm nearly sure john ruby was the engineer on this record as well oh right okay but what, the, what i was going to say to you was this would have been one of the ones where i used to let, really like doing the lights too, you know and you can you can really be creative with them. You know they had a really great system, but I one one night I was playing uh, confusion came on. I went to do the lights. I got electrocuted. I was thrown back like ten feet into the air. Wow! And there was these guys that were there were some of these people beside me, and I'm, like they told me afterwards, two of them were on mushrooms. You know it was like kind of mushroom season around. <laughs> Oh. Or whatever, and they were tripping out of their head They see me flying back. So I thought that was worth including. <laughs> Luckily, I was okay, I could have bloody died when I thought about that. Everybody was laughing. I went and I was like, geez, I could have died.
1: And I mean, the well, way that you, you, can, know, you know, get you health can. and safety, you just they would look like you probably could sue the venue. now. Well. oh, you absolutely could. But at the end of the day, there are two people who. One of them, at least, tells this amazing story about how he was tripping his nuts <laughs> off and this guy exploded through the air at him. It's worth it, right? It was worth it. But it
2: was a great, that was a great, I mean, it's, you know, I'm not, you never hear anybody talking about it, but it was a great dance floor filler and people used to love dancing
1: that. I got into, I'd like to think my musical tastes were developed by a friend called Cy Wollaston. Hi, Si, if you're listening. Um, I got into a bit of indie music, but sort of gateway bands, like the Wonder stuff and things like that. And then Sai gave me a tape. And this tape had, like, the wedding present. It had lard. It had uh, half man, half biscuit. Uh, it had gay bikers and acid, which was really important for me. It had that, had that petrol emotion. Um, It gave me around about 90. I, I remember um, Sensitize was on it. And that was it. I went I went and got Kemma Crazy the next day. It was a brilliant, brilliant album of that period. Um so that's when you came in. You that's when you came into my world, Roman. That's right. when you came yeah. into my world. Right. Um, but by then you'd gone more poppy, right? That was when I went back and listened to, to, to earlier albums, this was definitely a very poppy album. Yeah, I mean, it was our second record for
2: Virgin and um I think Scott Litt produced it, and he'd he'd done R.E.M., and I think he'd had a memo saying, you know, we need hits. We we knew we were under pressure uh, because the record before End of the Millennium uh, was made in very, very trying circumstances because basically the night that we went to start recording uh, Millennium and John or Sean O'Neill told us he was leaving. So you can imagine it was... It was pretty horrendous, actually, because
1: it, I, I still can't. Wait, so he told you, you, you go to record yeah. it. Does he tell you beforehand, I'm leaving after this, or does he just you say, go, I'm off? Right,
2: so we go away. So we're away. The, we went to Rockfield in Wales, where we'd done Manic Pop Thrill, the first record. So we, this is for the third record. Now we went back to Rockfield, where we had really good memories and stuff. First night, so we're there, put all your stuff in your room, go and have a drink or whatever, and he tells us that he's leaving do so it so so you've
1: got to record the album no
2: this is before we start recording
1: no uh, no but what i mean is he, he says did he say he's leaving and then he goes or does he say i'm leaving but let's do the album yeah well i mean
2: we, we were going to record so we, like we weren't gonna tell him to go home do you
1: know what i mean also, yeah, but but that's but that's that's the even weirder thing I know because you've got to then record an album staring at this guy yeah. going Fuck, man, what the fuck? I know. Well, you can imagine
2: what, the, I mean, I couldn't listen to Millennium for many years. And actually one time I remember trying to, about two years, two, three years after it had been released, I remember trying to listen to it one time and then I just broke down in tears. <laughs> I couldn't listen to it for years and years. And now I can because I've got actually a bit of objectivity on it now. So you can imagine the, the record was made in quite very trying circumstances. And luckily the songs were good uh So then, we almost broke up. I had I got into a bit of a state. I mean, I'd been kind of caning in it quite a lot around that time. I was in a bad way. But I kind of half sorted myself out, and Damien took over on guitar. So that was brilliant. You know, we, we just like it was kind of seamless. Just having one, the one great guitar player leaves, and another one's just there. So you, he just took over. And by that stage, Kieran and myself had. Kind of taking over this you know we were getting writing more songs or whatever, so it actually worked out okay we went and did an American tour and we by that stage we had all the songs that became Kemi crazy and then we went to l a to record it so that was the opposite of millennium everything about that was kind of pleasurable and obviously we knew we you know we knew we had to come up with uh like hit singles so you know we had Sensitize, Hey Venus, uh, Tingle. And then we had Abandon as well, which did really well. There was like a remix of Abandon that, that was like the first thing that was released. And Andy Wellerall did a remix of it, and that was quite successful. So that was a great time for us. You know, it was a really good time because yeah. we could have very easily broken up.
1: For sure, for sure. Um, okay, okay. Um, and so well, well, we'll skip it. I know that you've, the band sort of, carried on for a bit and then and, and did split you and m- most of that petrol emotion, half of that petrol emotion.
2: Uh, well, well, it's like four of us from the last lineup. So we got Brendan after Kemi crazy, the guy played bass on Kemi crazy. He left and we got uh, Brendan Kelly, who's uh, he played on fireproof the fifth and last petrol emotion record. And then he's also in the Everlasting, yeah. So basically what happened was the Petrols reformed 2008, 2009. We did a load of gigs. And it looked like we were kind of, we were talking about recording again and stuff. And then Steve, Mac wife had a baby. So he just didn't want to do anything anymore. So we were like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we decided we'd carry on and I would do most of the singing. But it was kind of like we would have everybody singing. So it was kind of unison and. Not any focus on a, on a singer or whatever.
0: I
1: saw you in oh, 2008, 2009, All Tomorrow's Parties. Yeah, yeah. The My Bloody Valentine book. Yeah, yeah, the one, The Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. Um, I, I, remember, I, I saw you at that one because I remember going, Are they still? Does not matter? I'm off. I'm, I'll, I'll go. I, I, I had a fucking great time. Yeah, well, I, I, I used to love like, was- ATP was the best. ATP was always the best.
2: Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that was a fantastic. Like, we like we were playing really so well around that time. So it was very disappointing when it kind of ground to a halt. But then we kept going. But then we've only made one record uh, so far for the Everlasting, yeah, one LP. But two of the members have had loads of health trouble. I mean, both okay. of them are fine now, but it wasn't looking good for a while. So, you know, we're getting older and you know what that comes illness and unpredictable stuff but just before we're, we're, we're kind of cursed by bad luck actually because we were recording the follow-up um january 2020 and then COVID happened so we haven't been able to oh. go back and to finish yet. so we're hoping to do
1: that maybe at the end of the year and get something out okay well on that on that um you mentioned something when we were chatting before this about a box set coming out. So yeah, that's so, probably as good a time as any to mention it. Yeah. Um, so, fi- yeah. So finally, um, we're
2: that pedal motion are getting a box set, um, and it's hopefully coming out in November. It'll be like seven CDs, and then there's um, a crowd up in Glasgow called Last Night from Glasgow, and they they reissued Babble recently as a double LP with all the extras and stuff on it. So all the stuff's starting to get out there again.
0: Um, Where would, where's the best well we'll put a link in the thing below, but where's the best place to find out um, well the, the 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 box and it hasn't been I don't think we've actually
2: done any publicity for it yet, but what, what it is, it's going to come out on Demon Records, who put out our first record, but they're now owned by the BBC. So it's quite interesting. Yeah. What? Yeah, they're owned by the BBC. <laughs> so hopefully, I mean, this is probably you know this is a bit of an exclusive. I mean, they, they, as far as I know, they haven't done any um, publicity so far.
1: Okay, so well, I mean, if, 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 if once there is a link or whatnot, we'll update everything below. Yeah, yeah, sure. if, you're yeah, listen, yeah, if you're listening, just, just keep details. keep it. Yeah, keep an eye out for it. Um, okay, let's move on. Um, what's next? The Velvet, the velvets. Needle in the
2: Haystack, just a kind of Motown stomp and classic. And we used to play quite a lot of Motown in the left bank as well. I mean, you know, be threaded through all the other stuff. You would have had kind of classic soul stacks and um, loads of Motown, just like, you know, like 25 Miles Edmund Starr, which kind of is Motown, but it's also kind of Northern Soul as well. So anything that great sort of stomp and beat. And I mean, you know, Motown still just makes everybody happy. So it's always a good. It was a good
1: floor filler. We have talked about, um, obviously, uh, the undertones and sort of uh, bands in the local scene. And we talked about how a lot of the the crowd in 83, 84, where they looked proto-goth, but they were dancing to Africa Bombarta and sort of some Eddie Eddie Grant and 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 whatnot. Um, with the exception of New Order, we haven't really touched upon anything properly alternative. Um, what I mean, okay, so I don't know what I don't know what your, I don't know what your your TV was like over there in Northern Ireland at the time, but I'm guessing you had obviously there was access to to John Peel and and The Enemy and Melody Maker. Um, what other What other tales of the you know? The, the the tracks coming over from from the UK. How did you get? How did you get to hear them? Well, we were bands. Uh, I'm guessing didn't come in tour.
2: Yeah. Well, no. I would haunt like I just haunted record shops all the time. I mean, I like I was on the dole. So what I would do uh, once the left bank started is that every day I would go around all the bargain bins. So I, I would find a lot of really great records. You know that were like fifty p or whatever. But the thing about the the next record, um, which just I wanted to sort of show that we, play, we did play guitar music from that time, but there wasn't a lot of really great guitar bands, really, at, at that time. Obviously, people like Susie and the Banshees and Echo and the Bonnie Uh and then the Smiths were kind of coming into prominence. And um, what difference does it make? It really reminds me of that summer of, uh, I think it's, is it 83 or 84, whatever summer it came out there was it was the record for the parties, all the parties of that summer was always what differences are making. Everybody was doing their Morrissey, and, <laughs> but it was just you know more, more so even than more so even than uh, that charming man. I mean, I was never like I. I think that was kind of like the height of my uh, affection for the. I'm trying to try remember.
1: Um, I've I've had a, mm-hmm, uh, I acknowledged some things from the Smiths, and I know way more than I, I think I do. What difference does it make? Is that the one that goes, boo? Is that this one? What? <laughs> you did that again? No, that's how soon is now. Yeah. Sorry, my brain, my brain yeah, yeah. is gone. Yeah, what difference my, does it the... make was the third single? So
2: it was the one after this Charming Man. So this Charming Man was the one that became, you know, that like made them sort of popular to start with. But then, what difference does it make was the single straight after it? And that I have really, really fond memories of that one because just because of that summer of all the parties and stuff, and then very quickly for me the Smiths became. Uh, I don't know what can I say. I, I was never. <laughs> I I just thought like Marcy. I, I could kind of see the, the shoots of what
1: he became were were there from the very early on. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of. I, I I I have heard a lot a lot of. I mean, I'm going to be very careful uh, about how 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 we we talk about the. Uh, apparently litigious, uh, <laughs> actually, singer of the Smiths. But, um, yeah, I've heard a lot of people say that there was stuff early on that um, sort of rang bells. For um, me, it was, like I said, they weren't my thing. No, they, they weren't really without, my without, thing. Without, no, I, I, very quickly, I got I bored. just remember the, I remember the dance. I just remember turning up at the raglan on Saturday and something, Noel Smith track came on. There was always a Smith track or two. And then three guys, one of whom became a very close friend of mine, afterwards, came up, or with a blonde quiff, or with a grey cardigan that was touching the floor, or with a yellow daffodil sticking out of the back pocket, and all did this this dance that can only be described as sweep the floor in front of you and behind you with your arm. <laughs> and I just stared at it going, <laughs> I don't know what's happening, but they're very popular with the girls. Ha huh. And yet, yeah, that was my introduction to what the Smiths were. Yeah, I mean, they, they obviously touched the
2: nerve with 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 their generation, you know, but I, I think I'd kind of, I was a little, a little bit ahead of that. it seemed i don't know i I just didn't get it as much as everybody else did but i mean that that song definitely people you know people loved it so it was a big uh, floor filler at the time and it, just to sort of say that we you know, we did play a lot of guitar music as well it's just like i can't remember a lot of the the ones that we would have played it, it probably was a lot of older stuff because you know I my guitar thing is like 60s 70s more than anything else
1: Okay, so, um, I mean, this is the final part. Um, We've started to realize over the last few episodes that finishing on the 10th track rather than playing the 10th track, then coming back and me going, that was the 10th track, bye. Just doesn't make any sense. And before we do, um, you were, the three of you had a, and I'm, not gonna, I'm not even going to use the word uh, successful or popular. You had a night that was important to the people who came. Yeah. And um, did you ever find you had even one day a moment of minus celebrity based purely on the left bank? Like you were there in a there in the local cafe and someone went, ah, oh, you, ah, oh, you, ah, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I always
2: say to people, I felt, <clears throat> I felt more like a rock star. Uh, playing for Bam Bam and doing the left bank that I did not Petrol Emotion, to be honest, <laughs> because it really did. It, it really connected me with a lot of people who are still friends with today. For example, I did this really, really good. Um, there was like a, in the local radio station, Radio Foil, there was like a weekend course where you could learn how to, you know, to make a program. And it was in the days when, you know, you did like edit with tape, tape edit. and mm-hmm. um, there was a guy on that and he, and he he had been to the left bank, so he knew who I was immediately, you know. So it was that thing. It was the first time in my life where people were like, oh, I know who you are, you know. And then, they you know, they really, they were very happy to make your, to become friends and you had a lot in common from, like, straight away,
1: you know, so it was great. Well, I, I do find, we touched upon it before, but, um, I mean, for me, I- People who are into music, and I don't mean this in a sort of pretentious way, but people who are into music, um, music is what connects them. Yeah, absolutely. And and you find, I don't know, all the people who I knocked about with in the early 90s, who I bump into occasionally when I go back to Wolverhampton, um, none of us have changed that that much. And I, I... it can't be an accident that we just happened to be mates then and we're still relatively similar now, but we all had very similar music tastes and the music tastes informed the, the style of... Yeah, it becomes your tribe, I guess. Absolutely. And for, some, for some of us, that music is, is an intrinsic part of the tribe. And for some, I find it's always a fleeting thing. So there'll be people who are massive sort of brick-pop people for a year and then they moved on, yeah. and they, they they didn't care anymore. And I'm there thinking, but, but this was my everything. This this was how I made my entire social group when I was younger. This is how I got out of going and working in that um, – what was that job I had? That insurance company I was supposed to go and work at when I was 17. Yeah, you know, I,
2: absolutely. I think music saves – it saved a lot of people's lives. It's so important. That's why I really hope that it's, that it's like that for this generation as well. I mean, my daughter, she – her – I mean, she's, she's a very talented singer and she loves music, but she just listens to K-pop. She won't listen to anything else.
1: I, I have found, uh, I, teach a, I teach a bunch of teenagers sometimes, and over the last six or seven years, very recently, they're starting to give a shit again. Oh, really? Yeah. As in, maybe it's because they're, they're doing it in a hipster way, like kids are buying record players. And because they're buying record players, they're listening, they're listening to the record. Even if they're doing it as a as a hipster thing, they're listening to the record.
2: No, but it's like it's the thing where you have a physical object as well, so it's not just like some information on your phone. Do you know what I mean? It, you have a it's something tangible, and then putting a record on as well. There's something nice about that whole process.
1: And I this I never thought I'd say thanks to Adele. Um, I've hated Spotify for a long time. I've I've tried to avoid it. The reason we put this on Mixcloud is so we don't really have to do the Spotify version. I don't use Spotify Um, either, really. I probably miss out on a lot of stuff with... um... Well, the few times I've tried it, and and my mate, we've got, there's an account in the house, but I rarely use it. But The few times I've tried it, I've gone, this is the experience? There's a big button and it just shuffles everything. Why is this the experience? And I will say, reading that last year, Adele said to them, why is my album on shuffle for free, people? It shouldn't be on shuffle. I'm Adele. Put my album on in, in, in normal format. Put all albums on in normal format. And they're like, hey Adele, thank you very much. Um, and I think, yeah, hopefully we're getting back to here is a body of work rather than, oh, we have to release 12 singles a year, no albums, and we have to do a TikTok to promote it and... There's no yeah, I know, I know. That that's a different episode for a different day. What is the final song, uh, please? The final song is What Presents by Orange Juice. Ah, so we had What Difference and now we have What Presents. Yep. Um, <laughs> why? This is not the first time Orange Juice have been chosen oh, on competition. Oh, yeah, like on because
2: they, they were one of the, the bands that we really loved at the time. I mean the, the under the Orange Juice had supported the Undertones uh air about nineteen eighty, I think. And John was really, really taken with them. And I loved them as well. So, um, and again, it's like a brilliant song that seems to have been forgotten as well. So, and it just and weirdly, really reminds me of that period as well.
1: You can go through months without hearing a band be mentioned. And I hadn't heard Orange Juice be mentioned since, I don't know, since we recorded one of these back in November. Um, I was watching something the other day and it was a clip and it was, oh, Apparently, Keir Starmer would like to, would, if he had to go to any gig back in the past, it would have been an orange juice one. I'm saying, wow, this is a random two days. This is a random two days. Um, say what you like about Keir Starmer. He's got a good taste in music. And also picking orange juice, it sounds like it's a real one rather than, uh, yeah, I like Arctic Monkeys. Is it the Arctic Monkeys? Yeah, I like Arctic Monkeys. Uh, um, really? Okay, Raymond, thank you ever so much for coming on. How thank you be? ever so much for, for telling us about the time. hope you've had a good time. I have, yeah. Thank um, you. We're going to finish in orange juice. And people who are listening, I'll put links in the doobly-doo below this. But like I said, the best place to go is infrequency.co.uk. Keep an eye out for that that Petrol emotion box set, um, hopefully later this year. And um, yeah, see you next time.